And I think they probably would feel a sense of, you know, social responsibility to become these medical heroes, as I call them, um, to be able to openly and with a upside open embrace research and, uh, you know, either contribute themselves or promote the family members and friends to engage in research voluntarily to keep the cycle of scientific and medicine advancement um, for years and decades to come. to Krista's Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing healthcare hot topics, giving you better insight into understanding healthcare today. I'm your host, Nikhila Pradier, and our guest on this episode is Pukar Rati, the System Director for Research and Academics at Krista's Health, and he's here to tell us about the cutting-edge COVID-19 research that Krista's Health has been involved in to deliver the best possible treatment to patients during this pandemic. It seems like we really are at an unprecedented time when it comes to uh, medical research, uh, particularly in this country, even though a lot of you know, COVID-19 research is going on all across the world. But just in your experience, have you seen research um, move at this sort of pace and magnitude? And I, I guess, you, you know, do you really think that the, the scope of this pandemic kind of uh, merits what could be a, 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 you know, a, a, an amped up pace and magnitude for research now? Well, thank you so much, Nikola, for having me on this show. I really appreciate you. Um, so, no, I've definitely not seen the pace and the magnitude of research um, that we are seeing in, in today's age. Um, the clinical research industry is certainly facing unprecedented times. Um, but then again, um, which industry out there is not, right? Um, I've been in the clinical research field for um, nearly two decades now, and, and I've worked on laboratory-based biomedical research. Um, I've done uh, free clinical research on animal models, and I've pretty much kind of worked on all four different phases of clinical trials in almost any indication out there. You know, call it oncology, cardiology, uh, orthopedics, women's health, pediatrics. I have kind of worked in most of those fields. And over my entire career all along, um, we have been doing research with the measure twice, cut once approach. I'm sure you've heard of that, but 2020 is different in all possible ways. And that includes clinical research as well. And so we are seeing a level of urgency at, at all levels of clinical research. I'll give you some specific examples. So um, each of the clinical studies um, has to be reviewed under regulations by an ethics committee. Typically, in US, we call them institutional review board. What we are seeing is that these IRBs are, are being more understanding and more flexible. Um, they are really keeping patients in the center of it all. And while they're still required uh, to follow all applicable FDA and OHRP regulations, what I'm seeing is that they are you know, doing things what they can. They are meeting more frequently. They are being more agile, and, and they are showing truly faster review turnaround times, and that allows us to launch our clinical studies um, faster than in, I believe, in non-COVID world. In another example, you know, each of our clinical studies that we do with pharmaceutical companies, um, they have to have a supporting clinical trial agreement or a material transfer agreement. 
Now, in the COVID world, what we are seeing are legal counsels are actually showing a quicker turnaround time and the responses uh, to our questions as well. Um, in a typical non-COVID world, a clinical trial agreement uh, pertaining to a clinical study would take 60 to 75 days. Today, we're seeing that happening in, in 30 days or less because they know patients out there are waiting. Uh, we're also seeing that the institutions are rethinking about, uh, you know, how do they want to do research? They are thinking outside the box, who are still remaining well within the adequate regulatory box, so to speak. And so we are seeing, including Sisters Health, uh, we are embracing more complex clinical trials. We are doing more inpatient studies, so these can really make an impact on the lives of the patients uh, today. We are also doing more early phase clinical trials. So all of them allowing us to, you know, give a second chance to, to the patients. They could be somebody's mother, father, sister, friend, or a colleague, you know. So we're really thinking from that angle and are able to, you know, embrace more research. On the government level, if we were to answer that question, um, the Trump administration has launched the Operation Warp Speed. Now, this is a very unique partnership uh, that I've, I've never seen in my, you know, in my career, where the government entities like NIH and the FDA, academic institutions, and pharmaceutical companies are all coming together to the table all at the same time. And they are doing so to get the treatment options um, to be able to combat this public health emergency quicker and faster. So that has really leading a lot of impact. And because of all of these efforts, what we are seeing is FDA moving also very quickly the regulatory review process. Uh, what we have seen in the last um, you know, six to eight months, um, incredible approval timelines for new diagnostic devices such as point of care for, for COVID-19. You know, we, we are seeing quicker turnaround times if we are positive or negative. Um, we have seen approvals for drugs like remdesivir. It has the FDA approval and is a treatment option for our patients. And um, hopefully this week or next, we should have the impending approval for the vaccine to treat COVID-19. So, you know, that just kind of shows you what it all boils down to. So again, to answer your question, no, I've never seen the pace and the magnitude of research that has happened in the last eight months. Yeah, it's, um, you know, really eye-opening, um, exciting from a certain perspective, but you're right. I do think that in the end, it boils down to us really having responsibility of just offering whatever we can to make sure that patients in our communities um, can have access to those uh, treatments, and if at all possible. Um, but I want to go back a little bit. You know, it seems like it was, you know, maybe eight or nine years ago, but it really was just like eight or nine months ago, um, early on in this pandemic, when, you know, uh, research efforts really ramped up and um, people were trying to uh, find different methods and different ways, different studies uh, to treat patients. And I know that at Christus Health, we got involved um, early on in COVID research efforts, like you said, to try to uh, get these treatments to our patients. And um, I know that early on we had involvement in a Mayo Clinic study that had to do with convalescent plasma and, and that treatment there. So can you talk to us a little bit about how Christus got involved in that and, and what kind of results we saw? 
that's an excellent question. So, so I will definitely say that we turned our focus to COVID-19 research very, very early on. I, I still remember, you know, pretty clearly uh, March 11th when uh, the World Health Organization declared this to be a global pandemic event. And um, I was like, wow, this, this is big. This is um, not under my belt of experience. Is, is my team prepared to fight? How do I keep everyone engaged? But I stayed calm and motivated and, and determined to fight this global war in all possible ways uh, through our research institute. And, and whatever we did all along, we have made sure to keep patients in the center of it all. And so as I reflect back, though, I feel very proud that we were very tactical from the get-go. And um, what we had done very early on is, is created um, a very authentic COVID-19 research strategy map. And I'll summarize that for you and, and just, just real quick. Uh, what it was was a, broadly speaking, a five-pronged approach. What we wanted to do was our research institute have the uh, ability to contribute to all facets of this novel COVID-19 disease. And so the five facets included first diagnostics. So we wanted to uh, make contributions in, in a meaningful manner for um, better diagnosing, quicker diagnosing this disease. And, and this would have involved um, studies on point of care devices or biospecimen research studies. The second bucket was the treatment um, studies, which would involve novel products such as the convalescent plasma, and I'll share our experience on that in just a moment. Uh, number three was, again, treatment trials, because these would have impacted the patients the most. And in this category would have been the innovative uh, drug um, uh, you know, uh, options. Fourth, um, anything we would do to prevent the disease, um, such as through vaccine uh, clinical trials. And lastly, even after the disease would be under control, um, hopefully in coming months, um, we wanted to continue to stay focused on making meaningful contributions by staying engaged in surveillance research. Because what we want to do in, in these fifth bucket of our priority map is to ensure that um, we, we still continue to make contributions by uh, learning different ways how this uh, novel drugs and vaccines are continuing to have the long-term impact um, on the patients who take it. So on to our experience on convalescent plasma. So I still vividly remember April 4th. This was uh, the first day when we had enrolled our first patient um, under the convalescent uh, plasma. And um, at that time, um, again, remember, March 11th was just a few weeks before this, and um, the first option out there that the um, FDA had made available was emergency IND approval, uh, which is emergency investigational new drug uh, option pathway for patients to get hands on convalescent plasma. And there was so little research, we just kind of looked back at what the passive immunotherapy-based research had done in the past when we had um, you know, similar epidemic events across the globe, such as Ebola and H1N1 and bird flu. And uh, that was kind of the basis for this all. And Christus Research Institute was very early on tapped into that opportunity. And on April 4th, our first patient got the actual treatment. And um, 
By mid-April, um, by seeing kind of the early response, um, because what, what was needing for this particular pathway is um, for each patient, we would have to go to the FDA, submit an application, and get the regulatory approval, then go to the blood bank, get the convalescent plasma, which was so scarce to get at the time, and then make it available to the patients. So that was kind of a long drawn process, but by mid-April, Mayo Clinic was awarded, um, you know, at the national level to launch a study under the emergency um, EAP pathway. And so we were like, wow, this is the next step forward. And we were pretty flexible and we quickly reached out to Mayo Clinic and got ourselves activated. Um, I will say this was the first time where all 26 acute care hospitals in the United States of Christmas Hills were participating in the very same study. So again, the pandemic showed us a different ways to come together and offer meaningful research options to all of the patients at every ministry. So that was a staggering achievement for our institute. Now, fast forward, um, we spent a whole summer working on this. Every research um, you know, uh, program in the region was, was focused on this endeavor. And by late August, um, we had enrolled, I guess, more than 2,000 patients in this protocol. And so that many patients' lives had the chance to, to, to be changed forever. Yeah. And um, this was the time when FDA actually um, gave emergency use authorization, EUA approval, to the convalescent plasma treatment. And so it was truly a proud achievement for our, our institute because of the 70,000 some patients enrolled across the nation, mm -hmm. 2,000 of them were enrolled in uh, Astrosa South location. And throughout this process, you know, it was a business summer, as you can imagine, we really wanted to keep the community very uh, much informed on what we are doing, how we are doing, and, and why we are doing. And so we did a lot of outreach work. We, we had um, TV interviews and we had um, newspaper articles, newsletters, blogs. We did everything we could to keep the community engaged and, and kind of, you know, uh, continue to own their trust um, in research. But um, in the end, it has kind of paid, um, paid off. Yes, and lots of partnerships also with our local blood centers and making sure that we encourage those people who had recovered to donate their plasma because it made such a big difference. Um, I noticed that Absolutely. as well. I'd also like to add that, um, you know, because of this um, kind of the first time opportunity for a research institute to run a clinical trial during a pandemic across the system in parallel, we have developed a publication um, from the operations management standpoint, and that has been approved for publication. So we are pretty excited to see that's kind of forthcoming um, to share with the industry our experience of uh, battling this uh, pandemic. That, that really is exciting. Um, and uh, it's just very impressive that Chris's Health has really been able to keep at the forefront of the pace of all of the research that's going on. Um, again, we're joined by Pukar Radi. He is the System Director for Research and Academics and the Institutional Official for Christus Health. So Pukar, I know, uh, you know, speaking of uh, new frontiers on the research horizon, I, I know that one of our ministries, uh, Christus Vaughn, uh, is now involved in a, a new, another clinical trial that's headed up by the National Institutes of Health. Uh, really an exciting opportunity, again, for us to provide 
um, you know, innovative uh, tests and care to our patients um, as there really aren't, you know, uh, too many participants in this trial when you think about all of the hospitals across this nation and facilities who are giving care to COVID patients. So can you give us some details on this? Absolutely. And so this is another uh, proud achievement for us to connect our patients in the coastal Bend area of South Texas with this really innovative and, and state-of-the-art research opportunity. It's, it's uh, funded by NIH uh, NIAD um, at this time. And um, what it is, is essentially it uh, allows the passive immunotherapy from recovered patients um, to be transferred in the patients who are currently sick. And so the product is hyperimmune intravenous immunoglobulin. And it's a mouthful, but it, it stands for HIVIG. And um, one way to think about it is, is, you know, think of it as a, as a richer concentration of convalescent plasma. I just kind of shared with you our experience of convalescent plasma extensively. And so after we did the convalescent plasma study, we, we did uh, launch and we currently have ongoing a study on uh, IVIG treatment at another crystal location. But when we saw this opportunity for, with the hyperimmune IVIG, we were like, wow, this really gives Crystal's Research Institute a chance to bring the whole array, the entire spectrum of passive immunotherapy treatment options from our patients, from colorism plasma to IVIG to now hyperimmune IVIG. So this study design is, um, is pretty safe as we have kind of reviewed it, our, our scientific committees as well as our uh, ethics committee when they have reviewed it. Um, what happens is patients who have had COVID-19 for, um, for up to 12 days since the onset of the symptoms could become eligible candidates for this study. Now, you wouldn't have access to this clinical trial if you are still outpatient and out and about this would be somebody who is inpatient, but not have had a serious event um, or such as organ failure. And so pretty early on, this disease gives them a chance to not reach to that stage and uh, a fighting chance by being enrolled in the study. So what happens is, you know, at this time, if they are still within that 12-day time range, our physicians and research uh, teams would come together, identify the patients and present the study to them um, and uh, seek their voluntary participation. If at that time they want to, you know, engage in the study, they will sign a uh, informed consent form, and they are then formally enrolled in the research study. The patients will then be randomized into two groups. So one group is going to get the actual treatment of hyperimmune IVIG. The second uh, team uh, or patient, you know, uh, randomized may get access to uh, a placebo, which essentially is a saline solution. Um, and what we don't want to do is really give an undue uh, chance to the patient who got the placebo um, to not heal. And so what the study does is right after the infusion of either getting the HIVIG or the placebo, right after they both get the infusion of remdesivir. And based on the physician's discretion, the remdesivir treatment can be for seven days, 10 days, uh, you know, based on the physician's discretion for clinical treatment for this patient. But this tells you that the study design is safe 
and gives everybody randomized to get the active treatment or not gets a fair chance to be treated, healed, and hopefully leave the hospital um, sooner than later. Um, and then what we do is kind of, you know, there are follow-up labs and follow-up um, interviews and data collection that we do for up to 28 days on these patients. But it's literally on day one when the, when the treatments uh, take place. And um, that is kind of the extent, you know, in, in a very high level summary of this clinical study design. Again, it seems like, um, you know, it, it, it can really set Chris's health up to be an important part of, uh, of figuring out if, you know, there's really another effective treatment that can be, you know, coupled with another treatment, remdesivir, that's been used before to see if it could really make a difference in, in making people who unfortunately contract the virus may not get as sick and won't suffer quite as many symptoms. And um, so, uh, it, you know, it, it seems like a, a really good um, opportunity and, um, you know, it'll be exciting to to see what comes out of that. Um, just in the overall scope of research now, you mentioned it earlier, but there's so much talk now about the vaccine, especially with, um, as we're talking on this day today, the FDA is considering uh, whether to authorize use of the, of the Pfizer COVID vaccine. But um, as the vaccine is distributed and you know Moderna's vaccine is, is considered, and we see more of the vaccines roll out, not just to our frontline healthcare workers and those who are prioritized first, but also the general public. What do you think the future of other COVID-related research will be as far as other treatments for you know, people who do contract the virus? Because it still seems like there's so much to learn about it right now. It is, and it, so this is a very um, interesting uh, and, and practical question, and thanks, Nicola, for asking that. Um, so what we think, interestingly, is, is really a lot of debate, both at the national as well as the global level. And, and, and uh, in fact, as we speak, today, I think the FDA Scientific Review Committee is reviewing the data for the Pfizer vaccine clinical trial. Now, as you know, this is data from phase three clinical trial. And for the Pfizer study, 44,000 uh, volunteers had uh, contributed their data um, for this particular study. And when you look at the Moderna clinical trial, which is kind of next in queue for hopefully getting DFD approval, that phase three clinical trial was performed on 30,000 patients across the globe. And what um, but what is happening in the debate, both at the national and the um, global level, is that the public is somewhat sitting on the edge. They, they, they are, you know, um, you know, not clear, should they get it, should they not get it? Uh, is it safe for older population? What about if you're pregnant? What about, you know, um, if I have a certain underlying disease? And so these are the variety of questions coming to everybody's mind, including my family and friends. Um, but what I tell them is, um, you know, either we have this treatment or nothing. And so we, you know, these vaccine trials do give us a fighting chance. And unlike some of the other nations, um, the United States really has been very cautious in these approval processes. And, you know, that's why until the phase two studies were completely done and the safety and efficacy and effectiveness data was available, 
um, FDA is not going to, you know, make this available to the general public. That is, you know, uh, what they'll be pretty stern on, um, and rightfully so. But uh, only time will tell because, you know, the 45,000 or 30,000 patients that we're talking about who, who were the first ones, and I call them medical heroes because they were the first ones in this battle, um, you know, they may have been of certain ethnicity or they may have certain, um, you know, medical disposition or they may have certain allergies. And so there's no telling uh, just based on that data who will tolerate the vaccine well or not. And this is exactly what FDA's experts are doing as we speak today and this week and next week before a full-blown um, EUA approval may be made available for the U.S. population. And so um, when, when these trials are done only on limited populations, because that is what the clinical trials do is, you know, we do clinical studies on select populations who volunteer to contribute uh, in these studies. And then you look at the world's population of 7 billion people. And so you really could not practically do clinical trials on 7 billion people, right? You have to have um, the capabilities to practically do it on a subset of population. And in today's world, you know, we try to do the research on pretty diverse populations in, in, in multiple countries. And, and so, you know, research is getting more generic in the sense where there's a representation of all the global faces per se. But we really will never be able to um, say that the drug is safe and effective on every human being out there. Um, only continued research will they'll be able to answer that particular question. Right, right. Well, that makes sense. And, um, you know, I think just because of the, um, of the nature of this pandemic, uh, people do get a little anxious um, about, um, you know, news like this when it comes out, because there is still so much unknown. But I do think you make a good point in that, um, you know, the research does give us a chance to try to combat this thing and, and fight it and eventually work towards what will be the end of the pandemic whenever that is. Um, but it is very encouraging that Chris's Health has been involved in all of these research efforts. Um, I guess uh, as we wrap up, uh, do you think there's any other important information to share to the public aside from, you know, just understanding that, you know, these research opportunities are happening and we're trying to get involved so that you know we can really impact our communities because as you mentioned at some point unfortunately all of us are going to be personally affected by this virus and so it uh it is comforting i think to know that um our ministries and christus health as a whole is really taking a proactive approach and ensuring that we can you know get innovative treatments um through trials and research to as many people as we possibly can so it just as as we finish, what would you say to people in terms of, um, you know, uh, how to think about these um, news stories about research, vaccines, et cetera, as they continue to roll out in the weeks and months ahead? Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting you asked that question um, because, you know, so on the personal level, uh, I will say that this has been the most fulfilling times of my career. That's, you know, um, no debate on that. And I'm very thankful for my ability to share my gifts and talents to the service of patients at Crystal's Health and the communities we serve. But what I'm, what I, you know, as I, as I kind of foresee, once we emerge from this 
um, global event, I think the face of research will change for the good. Um, so some of the things that I kind of foresee may change is, is the attitude towards clinical research. Um, when you are thinking about clinical research, I guess in the post-pandemic world, whatever that is, in, in months or years to come, I think the physicians will be thinking of research from a different angle. I think no longer will that be um, secondary in nature, something, you know, ancillary. Let's, let me do research for the sake of doing research. I think what will happen is a transformation of um, the culture um, for, for research and innovation in the, um, in the field of medicine. The physicians will always try to have treatment options that are still investigational in nature in their arsenal when they have patients coming to them. So let's say, um, you know, in the post-pandemic world, there's an endocrinologist, they see a type 2 diabetes patient, um, they will certainly offer them, you have, you know, drug A, B, and C, which are currently fully approved by the FDA. But by the way, I also have a drug D, which is investigational in nature, and I think this may also benefit you and the community in general via your participation. I think that's the type of conversations that will happen in every clinic and every um, hospital ward um, post-pandemic. I would love to kind of see that, and I think that, that may be a culture change. If you think about the government and regulatory bodies, I think they'll be rethinking some of the regulations and, and laws that may be out there and perhaps um, you know, rethink them in a different way. Do we really want them to be so stringent? Can there flexibility be added to them? How can we connect the patients faster um, to innovative drugs that do not have the approval today? So maybe there could be a culture shift there as well at the federal and um, you know, governmental level. And thirdly, and the last, would be uh, the mindset of the general population, the communities. I think the patients would be feeling more comfortable, and I think they probably would feel a sense of you know, social responsibility to become these medical heroes, as I call them, um, to be able to openly and with their arms wide open embrace research and uh, you know, either contribute themselves or promote the family members and friends to engage in research voluntarily to keep the cycle of scientific and medicine advancement um, for years and decades to come. You know, I think those are some of the culture shifts I foresee may emerge post-pandemic. Wow. Well, you know, I mean, this pandemic, I think, is going to, um, you know, be a culture shift in multiple areas. I mean, we, we've already so much in, in drastically uh, changed the way that we live and do our day-to-day -day functions, business activities. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, medical research in terms of, you know, just regular, more preventative care becomes more integrated um, because the times are definitely changing when it comes to that. Um, Pukar has been a great discussion. Uh, thanks for joining us and thanks for getting all this great information out um, to the listeners. And um, I'm sure that it is much appreciated. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christus Chat. For more information about Christus Health, the services we provide, and the communities we serve, you can visit our website at ChristusHealth.org. And please join us again soon for the next Christus Chat.